Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The Senate has averted a government shutdown until March 11, when Washington expects an appropriation package to fund the government and avert a full-year continuing resolution. This, as the administration reveals, it will request $733 billion for the Pentagon when it submits its budget to Congress in late March, or at least the expectation is late March. Uh, Pessimists think that it could be uh, as late as April. All eyes are on whether Russia will invade Ukraine as Moscow adds troops to its neighbor's borders and cyber attacks target Ukrainian banks and ministries and Russian separatists in the eastern part of the country trade artillery fire with Ukrainian forces. Russia's Duma has also recognized two separatist uh, regions of eastern Ukraine uh, as, as well, although Vladimir Putin has yet to do so. The administration has released its Indo-Pacific strategy, and weeks after the Federal Trade Commission blocked Lockheed Martin's proposed acquisition of Aerojet Rocketdyne, prompting the companies to call off their transaction, the Pentagon has issued a new competition strategy that it says is vital to cutting cost and driving innovation. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Check out our Cavus Ships podcast, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week. And tune in to the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Michael, start us off. Uh, Senate has averted a shutdown. What's next, even though there are parts of the audience that are getting a little bit of a Groundhog Day effect on this? Sure. Uh, well, as you know, we talked last week, the House had passed their version of the CR and then left town. So only the Senate was in town this week and, of course, waited to almost the last minute uh, to pass the CR. And it was primarily because several roadblocks uh, popped up and more and more popped up as we got closer uh, to the deadline. Many uh Republican senators demanded votes on amendments uh, in order to get their votes on, in order to let the CR go forward. Uh, amendments ranging from uh, the government, you know, not buying um, drug paraphernalia to uh, vaccine mandates to balanced budget amendments. And if any of those amendments had passed, it would have altered the CR that the House passed, which would have required them to send it back to the House. And the House wasn't here. So a shutdown would have been possible. Uh, but fortunately, all those amendments failed uh, and the CR passed with a bipartisan vote. Uh, so now as you pointed out earlier, the government is now funded through March 11th, and the appropriators I've spoken to on both sides of the aisle uh, feel fairly confident that they will have an omnibus ready to go uh, by March 11th. Uh, and it looks like the defense number um, in that bill is, is going to be 4 to $5 billion higher than the AA, NDAA number. So it'll be an extra 29 or $30 billion extra for defense. The, t- the whole number for the Omni will be about $1.5 trillion. Uh, and there is talk, and I think it's smart talk if they do this, about breaking the omnibus into two bills and passing two instead of one big giant omnibus. Because I think that becomes a target uh, for conservative media uh, when it hangs out there. So uh, that remains to be seen, but that progress is ongoing and, and very positive. 
And uh, uh, Mike Stone of Reuters is reporting that uh, the administration is likely to request $773 billion uh, in its 23 uh, request uh, that is going to get submitted, uh, we hope, sooner rather than later, right? But the bracket is, you know, everything from mid-March all the way to the the pessimist, uh, Todd Harrison, that means you uh, at CSIS, who thinks that it could go late as April 15. Um, you know, how, how is that being received? Uh, because on the face of it, it would seem like it's a good number. But when you really look at it and you squint at it, it may not be as good of a number as the department might need. Yeah, exactly, exactly correct. Because uh, when you take inflation in consideration, that number is actually a reduction in defense spending. Uh, so uh, there's been talk on the Hill already among Democrats as well as Republicans that they're going to have to add money to that number uh, when it comes over. Uh, so um, I, I think that that will help ensure that the process does move forward, though I would anticipate uh, another CR uh, at the end of this fiscal year as well, because it's an election year. But uh, given what's going on in the world and given how serious inflation is, uh, and given what just happened with the CR and the lost buying power, I would expect uh, Congress to add money to that number when it comes over. Um, Dove, uh, let me pull you in uh, as our uh, resident defense budget expert, as you've devoted a, a lifetime to, <laughs> to studying that and, and, and living it. Uh, anybody who knows you in your pre-comptroller days recognized you were six foot two. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what this new number means. Well, I think Mike has it. Uh, the new number, if it comes in low, and if indeed the Congress adds money, that creates a real problem for Pentagon planners because you really can't plan an out-year set of numbers if every year it's Congress that adds money to it. And so it puts them in a very difficult bind. They know they need to keep up with the Chinese if not be ahead of them. They now have a Russian headache too. There's a whole problem of simultaneity here that demands more money. But if the budget comes in lower than what they need and it's only Congress that adds to it, then they, how do they plan for that? What do they include in the budget? What do they guess that Congress will give them? Um, this is not a way to do business. It's better than CRs, there's no question, but it ain't good. Let me um, go back to uh, Michael uh, for a moment. Um, where do we stand on bipartisan uh, legislation, right? I mean, we've got competes. We have all of these uh, things going on. Simultaneously, we were achieving a, a moment of bipartisan consensus uh, between Democrats and Republicans uh, on, for example, Russia sanctions. Uh, but as we've seen in reporting, but as well as lawmakers uh, that I've talked to over the past couple of months, uh, Republicans came under pressure for Kumbaya and were under pressure to do something uh, different uh, and, and to break with uh, Democrats. Uh, obviously, uh, the Republican sanctions include secondary sanctions on the Russians, whereas uh, the Democrats want to save that until after uh, something uh, happens. You know, wh where are we on all the other pieces of legislation and, and, and the outlook for what was a brief window of bipartisanship, which may uh, be closing in part, and in part because GOP donors don't really want as much kumbaya in, in, in a year, in an election year. Well, I mean, last week you were hailing uh, the return to bipartisanship. So look, this is a uh, good. I was hailing it. I was it. I, I was excited <laughs> about it. Uh, and yet political gravity always seems uh, to uh, d descend on this. And by the way, Dove and I were 
uh, have been at uh, numerous conferences, and I've discussed this with both Republican and Democratic lawmakers who who want to work more closely together. But it, it was uh, a, a prominent Republican lawmaker who told me, look, I, you know, our donors are very unhappy with this. And, and a Democratic senator joked with me, you know, he was like, thankfully, our donor base is not as crazy yet. Right. So he left room that, that uh, you know, the, the partisanship on all sides on this. Right. I'm not ready to absolve anybody of partisanship. But ultimately, where are we and where are we going? And is there sort of a bipartisan sense in the members that you're talking to to get some of these big things solved? Because at the end of the day, their job is to legislate. I, I agree 100 percent. And yes, there is like, you know, again, you know, our, our focus here is our national security and national security continues to be, I think, you know, the or one of the last bastions of bipartisanship. And we see both parties working together to pass NDAAs and and hopefully pass appropriations bills. We saw a bipartisan vote on the CR uh, yesterday in the Senate. We saw an overwhelming bipartisan vote the week before. And I think we'll see a bipartisan vote on the on the omnibus. Uh, I think when it comes to Russia sanctions, you know, that was you know, uh, disappointing, you know, spiral downhill where we went from talk of, you know, there's the mother of all sanctions bill on a bipartisan basis to all of a sudden a strongly worded statement uh, and then ending up with a symbolic non-binding resolution that asked the president to impose significant costs on Russia if it invades Ukraine and condemns the build of a Russian troop. So, you know, completely meaningless. I don't think that scares or concerns uh, uh, Putin one bit. Uh, although, you know, the, the folks on the Hill will say, uh, on both parties, that the president has all the sanction authority he needs. So if uh, Russia does, in fact, invade Ukraine, that there will be uh, sanctions and a cost to bear. But you know, there were a lot of forces at work, too, lobbying against the sanctions bill that really weren't aligned with any one particular party. I mean, there were folks uh, in the banking industry uh, that were concerned about effects on them. Uh, there were other businesses um, that tangentially would have been hit by um, effects on on, uh, on the banking industry. Uh, I even heard of one uh, that was uh, uh, people who import uh, certain weapons, you know, um, guns from, from, from Russia for sporting purposes, wanted exceptions to the sanctions bill. Everybody was out there looking for exceptions, which would have taken all the teeth uh, out of the sanctions package at the end of the day. And unfortunately, you know, we've seen Congress doesn't have the ability to, to come up with these things quickly. These things take time. But in the end, if there is an invasion of Ukraine, uh, the, the, the United States will impose serious sanctions on, on, on Russia. And uh, just on competes and all the other important pieces of legislation that are out there? Well, you know, look, uh, competes is, is next, right? And uh, there is a commitment uh, from both sides to get those bills conferenced and passed. Uh, now, I think that uh, the, the Senate bill is more of a bipartisan bill than the House bill. The House bill was not considered a bipartisan bill, and the Republicans opposed it and felt they were shut out of the process. So uh, only time will tell. But with every passing day, we get closer to election and bipartisanship becomes more difficult. Uh, so uh, I, I'm not optimistic on it, but I'm not ruling out that this has a chance. Obviously, I think it has a much better chance than BBB, which, believe it or not, they still talk about. But uh, with every passing day, it, it becomes harder. And I think that, um, you know, depending on what happens with, with the omnibus, how much how much energy is left uh, to work on uh, competes in Yusika. Uh, Jim, uh, let me bring you into the conversation because we're talking about uh, Russia and our uh, Chinese friends <laughs> as well. Um, Russia says it's pulling back troops, uh, a claim NATO and just about everybody else uh, re rejects. Um, Moscow launched cyber attacks against Ukrainian banks and ministries, including um, the defense ministry. Uh, Moscow-backed separatists are shelling uh, in the east uh, of, of the country. And then, of course, we had the Duma last week recognizing uh, two Russian separatist enclaves of Donetsk and Luhansk uh, as Russian. Uh, Putin has yet to sign the, the decree, um, but 
you know, and, and saying that we're giving uh, diplomacy a chance. Uh, the administration warned that an invasion would happen on Wednesday. It didn't happen. So what? At this point, Putin can act whenever he wants. I mean, I've been making the case he's the puppeteer and we're the dummy, unfortunately, in, in this. President Biden said he expects Putin to still attack, although Russian officials and their amplifiers in Washington and elsewhere maintain no attack is, is coming. Where, where are we right now? How do you read these uh, tea leaves? Well, I think there is no there is no question that an attack is coming. Um, I'm not going to put a, a date on it, and I'm not sure exactly why they felt uh, whoever it was in the administration to put a date on it. But um, uh, it's it's certainly coming. I think the, uh, the the squeaks that you heard over the past few days about diplomacy, uh, these this highly staged uh, meeting between uh, Lavrov and Putin, uh, that's that's all yesterday, and that was all a fake anyway. Um, and, and and in fact, the Russians aren't even claiming that they're pulling troops back anymore. They're, you know, and it's it's just been debunked uh, both by governments as well as you can see it on the commercial satellites. Uh, the photos they're not they're not moving out. They're moving closer, uh, and uh, and those forces that were in the move were in areas that weren't going to be uh, primary areas in terms of a invasion. So it, it is definitely coming. We're seeing the early stages of it now. Um, we have to remember that an invasion isn't necessarily tanks crossing, uh, you know, the, the, a boundary line. Uh, what we're seeing are, you mentioned the cyber attacks, uh, the shelling and the fighting along the contact line uh, uh, there in, uh, the, in the Donbass has just skyrocketed. So, um, and also I saw something just a minute ago where uh, one of the separatists said that they are moving their people out of those, uh, out of the separatist areas in, back into Russia to keep them out of harm's way uh, in case fighting starts. So th th this is this is it's going to happen. It is happening. These are the early stages. I think the next couple of days you're going to see it, and we're going to have to be ready for it with sanctions as well as bulking up uh, U.S. force posture in Europe. Um, I and um, uh, in uh, uh, to give Dove credit where credit is due. Dove always thought it might be a, a little bit more of a limited invasion. And Dove, uh, I'm going to turn to you uh, in, a, in a moment. But let me ask you one other question, uh, Jim. I mean, ultimately, even over the last week, uh, we are recognizing that Putin has been moving the diplomatic needle, right? Zelensky has, has or at least is reported to have said, well, you know, Ukraine doesn't necessarily have to join. Um, uh, you know, Ukraine do doesn't necessarily need to join uh, the NATO alliance. You, you've got uh, us uh, discussing uh, through diplomacy, uh, greater transparency at missile sites, uh, whether in Poland or in Romania, uh, discussion about greater transparency regarding troop deployments and, and weapons deployments, right? I mean, so to in a sense, the, the Russians are sort of getting, you know, our, on the surface, we're saying we're going to stick by our principles and there are things that are non-negotiable and the president deserves credit for that uh, and what he told the nation uh, in addressing it earlier this week. On the other hand, there's this sense that almost everything is is on the table. I mean, you have greater visibility into this than than we do. Are are we are we actually more willing just to avert conflict? Is that the goal of this, or do you think that the administration and its allies have actually been standing firm? Because I note again for the umpteenth week, Olaf Scholz has yet to say Nord Stream Two is in trouble. Well, I think it's all the above in the sense that, um, you know, in terms of the diplomacy side, no one wants to see this war take place. I mean, there's going to be no winners in this. 
Uh, and Putin, uh, particularly if, if he might, he might have some successes if, there, if he launches this land campaign, he might have some successes on the battlefield. But in the long term, it is not going to be something that's going to provide uh, a winning feeling to him because he's going to have a mess on his hands. Uh, with the sanctions as well as trying to deal with with Ukraine, so so no one wants that. So we are we have been pursuing the diplomatic side, and that helps smoke uh, smokes out the Russians too. You know, with they uh, they have made these demands, and we made counter demands. We've gone back and forth, and a lot of what you laid out, which in fact have been on the table. Those are things that we've offered in the past, the transparency in the missile defense sites, uh, the transparency when it comes to uh, exercises. You know, that's the Vienna documents, you know, do that. I mean, there's there's a lot here that uh, we're certainly willing to talk about because we've offered it in the past, both Republicans and Democrats. So so we've been willing to talk. But it's obvious that that is not where Putin is. He wants to take Ukraine no matter the cost. Um, And so he's you know, he's off. He's off to do that. Um, so, you know, I think we're going to now see the handiwork unfold of this, of, uh, this autocrat. We're going to see where he ends up in the next couple of, couple of days. It's going to be a stunning, if he goes in full blast, it'll be quite a shock and a stunning for not just the Ukrainians, but for us to watch unfold, it'll be terrible. Uh, and, um, and, and so I think, um, you know, with the sanctions on top of that, we're going to see months ahead of instability, whether it's in Ukraine or it's in terms of how the nations deal with the sanctions that will roll back on us, whether it's higher prices at the gas pump or problems in Europe in terms of banking and, and that type of thing. But uh, just to close off, you know, I think the administration um, has, has given the uh, um, you know, given this diplomatic track, the best shot that it could, uh, the, the allies have stayed unified on that. I, I, I know what you said about Nord Stream 2. I mean, there's been squeaks and squawks beneath the crust of this unity that they're showing, you know, at the defense ministerial over the past couple of days. Uh, a lot of the statements, you know, we, we, are, we are unified. There are issues concerning the sanctions and, uh, and there will be issues, I'm sure. But I'll, I'll have to give this administration credit. They have been working those sanctions hard. I've heard about some of the sanctions that are going to be different than they were in 2014. Thank God for that. Um, and uh, I think so far we've got the allies with us. But, you, you know, uh, the best laid plan goes out the window when you, you know, it doesn't survive contact with the enemy. And that's going to happen soon. And we'll see how how unified we really are and how we can keep together to get these sanctions going. Nord Stream 2, you know, uh, the Germans might not want to give that up. But I think Nord Stream 2, in the face of a concerted Russian impact, uh, invasion of Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 is, is probably history. Uh, and and uh, one encouraging step is that Germans uh, apparently are taking seriously, as are other Europeans, about diversifying sources of energy, something which the administration has been trying to broker uh, with Qatar uh, right. and, and, and Gulf, uh, Gulf nations. Dove, I want to uh, bring you into the conversation. This weekend is the flagship uh, Munich uh, Security Conference, known to us old timers uh, by its original name, the Verkunda or the Verkunda Tagung. Uh, which stands for the Military Science Conference going on at the Bayerischerhof Hotel uh, since 1963, created by Baron von Kleist. Uh, you're a veteran of the conference, both in and out of, of, of the government. R- Russia is continuing to flaunt every limit, right? I mean, we are back at full Soviet 
disinformation levels, uh, ultimately, right? Falsely claiming uh, that it's uh, withdrawing troops when it's not withdrawing troops. In fact, it's advancing troops now, 180,000 surrounding Ukraine, um, you know, claiming it scared off a U.S. submarine off the Kuril Islands that left behind an electronic package, uh, which the United States is flatly uh, refusing. Uh, Then at the Olympics, you know, you know, just we saw one of the most extraordinary um, moments when the world's leading skater who was accused of doping conveniently melts down to ensure she was off the podium so that others uh, can get incontestable medals because it did look like the IOC was going to strip her of a medal. And it was chilling exactly because we were watching a Real Olympique in, in, in action that was stage managed right down to making us feel bad for her and them. Uh, you know, I mean, it was it was chilling uh, because of that. Um, right. Kamala Harris and the U.S. leadership is going to be in, in Munich. Um, the Russians are conveniently boycotting that. What has to happen over the weekend? How do we need to look at this? And it, are we at the wake up moment? Because it is beginning increasingly as the likelihood of Russian invasion goes up. It is more and more appealing, appearing that whether or not he invades, we may already be crossing a Rubicon where folks are going, this is out of control at this point. Well, I don't know if he if he just has a a minor invasion. And, you know, you remember Biden's slip about that, which everybody else remembers uh, that may uh, cause the Germans to back away from Nord Stream, too. I think uh, uh, Jim has it right about that. Uh, They are wobbly. Uh, and uh, they may not be they may not be solid. I mean, you look at that government. Uh, it's a coalition government. Uh, it's not at all clear that uh, that anything other than a full scale invasion would get them to uh, close down Nord Stream 2. Of course, they're going to look at alternatives. I've got a piece today about how this may be driving Turkey and Israel together, even though they've been at each other's throats for years. Uh, because the Turks would like to ship Israeli gas to Europe. I mean, there's all kinds of second and third order effects. But the fact is, it really depends on how far Putin will go. And he's no fool. I think people who still think he's a tactician are kidding themselves. This guy's got a strategy. There's no question about it. Now, look at one other thing. The Duma voted, as you mentioned, to recognize uh, 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 Donetsk and Luhansk as independent states. Now, you don't think that happened without Mr. Putin telling them to do that. And he's already got a track record with South Ossetia and Abkhazia and Georgia. He's got it with Transnistria in Moldova. So this would be a next step. And if he combined that with some small slice of Ukraine, he comes out a tremendous winner. Uh, NATO may or may not hang together at that point. Uh, and so uh, we've got a long term problem. And, and frankly, and I think Jim mentioned this, too, at least uh, incidentally, uh, even if he doesn't go in, he all, he's demonstrated he has the capability to go in. And by the way, those troops in Belarus, I think, are a hedge against Ukraine doing anything against uh, uh, these provinces if they declare it, if their independence is recognized by Russia. So he's demonstrated that he's got a stranglehold on Ukraine no matter what he does. And that is the big challenge for the West because if he doesn't go in, what does it now do? Does it impose sanctions? What determines whether it imposes sanctions? These are very big questions. Whether Harris is up to it over the weekend, I honestly don't know. Uh, 
when you go to this, you know, frankly, Munich is a, is a, a big group group. I don't know how to put it any other way. There are just so many people there. So what really matters isn't her presentations to the large uh, group of uh, the large audience. What really matters is her one-on-ones and whether she can get particularly the Germans to come on board. And then there's one other thing. There's talk in Washington of secondary sanctions. Secondary sanctions never sit well with the Europeans because that means that any business that they do with Russians will sanction them. And that could be some very large European businesses. So watch out for that one too. Um, let me uh, ask you, one, you, know, you and I were uh, going back and forth as we always do in preparing uh, for this show and occasionally having thoughtful uh, points that we make to one another on our, on our work or on our thinking. Um, you at one point said that you think Macron is moving away from the US to punish Washington for the AUKUS deal. Uh, and I want Patrick to get to AUKUS uh, in a minute. You've been very patient for waiting as long as you have. What's the evidence, given how closely the French and American presidents are working together, including calls every couple of days, uh, and both sides telling me exactly how happy they are with the relationship? I heard this on Capitol Hill from a very senior senator uh, who's well-informed and uh, doesn't usually speculate unless he, it's a he, uh, has the basis for it. Um, and it, it's logical if you think about it. If you look at how de Gaulle worked with the United States very, very closely, and at the same time wanted France to lead an independent kind of Europe. Macron has not backed off at all on his independent strategy. It's always been somehow in coordination with the United States, but as an equal with France being at the head of Europe. So the fact that he talks to Biden every other day doesn't in any way diminish his ultimate goal, which is to set Europe up as a co-equal with the United States with France in charge. That I think is what's going on. AUKUS has really ticked them off. And yes, I think that part of the independent, part of what strengthens his determination is the fact that unless Europe is taken seriously by Washington all the time, not just in a crisis, and unless France is seen as the leader of Europe, they're gonna be more AUKUSes and he doesn't like that. Um, I, I would also like to point out, right, that uh, uh, every French president who looks in the mirror sees de Gaulle looking back. And ultimately, if you go back to your point, uh, Dove, uh, to the origins of the European community, there was this sense and this importance of, of France leading it uh, and talking about the importance of European sovereignty uh, so that that is not necessarily a new idea, even if it is valuable for the United States, because I think Macron is right. The United States is going to spend more of its resources on China, 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 and that Europe must improve its security game and then and also pick up in places that the United States will not be as present uh, and, well, that, and represent the West right. the United States. Look, that that's right. And and uh, we don't have the kind of the force levels we used to. We have to re really rely on allies in a very serious way. Oh, by the way, the French are a Pacific power. They've got two million citizens in the Pacific, so they could be very important even out there. Uh, but you're right about de Gaulle in the mirror. Remember, how was de Gaulle treated during World War Two? Basically like a, a nuisance. He was disliked. He was put down and he was always resentful. And that resentment is part of the French psyche ever since. Um, I uh, well, uh, he he was also behaving in a way that folks found 
pr profoundly irritating. Uh, and obviously the Suez crisis in 1956 didn't help uh, in, in the relationship and, and what eventually happened in 1960. Uh, Patrick, you've been very, very uh, patient uh, uh, to, to join us. What do we know? You know, last week, uh, you gave us sort of a little bit of a primer as we've gotten closer uh, to the release of the Indo-Pacific strategy, 18-page uh, uh, document, um, good uh, reviews of it overall in terms of framing what it is we have to do, although I do have some uh, criticisms I want to get to uh, with you. What, what do we know now that the document is out that we didn't uh, last week? Because uh, we were waiting on it being formally issued uh, at, at the program uh, last week. And, and obviously, uh, right, the administration briefed everybody and, and you guys couldn't discuss that, obviously, until the document itself had been released. No formal launch. I know that there were a couple of launch events that were supposed to happen that haven't had, happened because of the Ukraine event. I think you're hosting one of them. Talk to us a little bit about what we know now that we didn't know last week. Well, Vago, I mean, 18 pages is a generous length because uh, that includes the cover and the, and the table of contents. It's, it's a concise document, but it makes a very strong statement for the Indo-Pacific being at the center of American strategy uh, and also that the Indo-Pacific is at the center of global strategy. Um, it doesn't say anything I think most of these, uh, most of your listeners are, are, you know, are not aware of. Um, it does envision, uh, to use the buzzwords of the, of the document, um, sort of preserving a free and open Indo-Pacific that is more connected, more prosperous, more secure, more resilient. And it offers a 10-point action plan that really is a compilation of various activities and policies that have been ongoing for some time or, or new initiatives under the Biden administration from uh, creating an Indo-Pacific economic framework, which is a critical uh, test of, of America's economic weight in the region and trade power that is lacking and, and is the weak point really of the strategy, uh, to driving more resources to the region, which is one of the, you know, recall the major criticism of the Obama pivot, um, to reinforcing deterrence and using the phrase integrated deterrence, big questions about how that actually applies to say Taiwan, strengthening ASEAN, which is, you know, good luck because ASEAN is by nature uh, a, a sort of incohate kind of weak collection of 10 Southeast Asian countries, but there will be a special summit in DC at the White House uh, coming, but we haven't heard more details about that yet. Supporting India's rise, delivering on the quad, expanding US-Japan-Korea cooperation, Pacific Island resilience, good governance, and then sort of the 5G alternative and, and you know secure and trustworthy tech. Those are the 10 points of the action plan. Nothing, again, we haven't heard about before. So really it's a matter of ability to deliver. And in, in the Biden administration, it says in this document, as clearly as anywhere, that uh, we're going to prioritize our, our network of allies and partners. In fact, this document says that's our single greatest asymmetric strength. So the test will be, is it? Can we, can we mobilize and rally allies and partners the way, say, the administration is doing successfully in the transatlantic case about Russia? Can we do that in the Indo-Pacific, uh, not just in the short term, but in the long term? That's going to be the key test. I have a, a long article in... Uh, the Straits Times today that talks about both the strong points of this this strategy uh, and then some of the challenges that we're going to face on both ends and means. Well, let's uh, let's talk about those challenges on ends and means, right? I mean, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I, you know, you you have to have the will. Having allies and partners aboard matters, but so does hard capability, and then obvious oversights that convince your adversary you may not be serious. Not having a dry dock in APRA. Uh, since 2016 suggests we might not be as serious, uh, right? Uh, ultimately, um, what are your criticisms 
And what, and ultimately what matters is resourcing what it is you're doing. So your adversary looks and says, wow, there is no say do gap here, right? You're saying this is important and you're putting your money against it. What, what are your criticisms and, and, and what is it the administration has to do better? Well, while we have now a written strategy, a clear written strategy in public, anchoring America in the middle of global power in the Indo-Pacific, we still don't know exactly what is the end state of U.S.-China relations. And that's sort of what is nagging a lot of leaders in the Indo-Pacific. Um, they want to know where are we heading, you know, whether it's the decoupling or the military co competition. Um, it's interesting that this strategy document never characterizes the U.S.-China relationship as a, an adversary. Uh, as an adversarial relationship. Uh, it only talks about competition and rivalry, but then it puts it in the context of we're going to be shaping this strategic environment, the region, rather than trying to change China. So at least we've given up on that idea. Of we're going to bring about convergence with the PRC. Instead, we're going, to, we're going to actually work in the larger environment with allies and partners and other institutions to shape it. The question is, do we really have the wherewithal to do that? And so you're suggesting on the military side, maybe we don't. Um, on the economic side and trade side, it's even more glaring that we're really not driving the economy in the Indo-Pacific. When you think about multilateral trade pacts right now, or even the Belt and Road Initiative and development, um, and we have to do a better job of trying to compete, not displace China's efforts there, but better compete. And that's going to have to be done collectively. And that takes a lot of hard diplomacy and, uh, and work, and it's going to take bipartisan support, all recognized in this document. So the question is, can we deliver on that optimistic assumption that we will be able to drive the economy in the future? We will be able to still preserve security, even while we've got North Korea growing its arsenal, even while we have China expanding its military capabilities. Um, and even though we still have a huge challenge in harnessing allied capability, when you think about AUKUS or the Quad or other groupings, we have a big challenge trying to pull our, our collective weight uh, toward a common purpose. Uh, again, it, it goes to the whole point of what is it you what is it you are trying to uh, achieve? And I'm very, very cognizant. And one of the things we're trying to achieve is to try to get back to Michael before uh, Michael moves up, because uh, there is uh, the competition strategy that I want to get Michael's take on uh, and, and Dove's uh, take on. Uh, but let me ask you two quick questions and then we'll bring um, Michael in and, and then we can move back to you guys on a couple of other topics. Um, Two, two things. Was it a mistake? You know, when you look at the Asia Pacific strategy, there are a number of overlays, uh, Patrick, right? Uh, we have the Quad, we have the new Pacific Partners Initiative uh, on top of it. We've got stuff that we're doing uh, with ties with Vietnamese, with Philippines, we're doing it with Micronesia, right? There are all these overlays that are going on. But what I found sort of curiously absent from it is clearly talking about Canada, which is a Pacific power and our closest ally, and Latin America. Uh, which are all, you know, we have a number of Pacific powers there that could be useful powers uh, where, as we've discussed on this program, China is making enormous uh, inroads. W was that kind of an oversight not to bring the Canadians to the table in some of these agreements, the way that we're bringing in the Australians, New Zealanders, important to bring France in. I think that was some of the, one of the most important elements of it, bringing the British in, in a former part, that was really important. But then it makes it all the more glaring that Canada is not part of it and Latin Americans aren't part of it. Um, was that an oversight? Is that problematic from your standpoint? Well, it is missing, but it is probably also still happening. That is to say, you know, this document is not the final word on our Indo-Pacific strategy. It talks about we're going to be building multiple, flexible, 
arrangements. Um, wherever we have the like-minded states, whether they're allies or our new partners, um, so they're leaving the door open to talking about those things. But yes, you are pointing to a couple of the missing elements of this very, very concise document. Remember, the document that Xi Jinping and, and Vladimir Putin issued on 4 February out of Beijing is a longer statement than the strategy of the United States in the Indo-Pacific. So we've got to take that into account. This is a short document. It couldn't say everything. Um, let me, um, I'm going to pick this up with you uh, in just a moment and bring uh, Jim uh, and Dove into it as well. But very quickly, Michael and Dove, Pentagon just in, uh, issued uh, a uh, competition uh, strategy, uh, making the case that, you know, competition is good. It's good for innovation uh, and good for uh, um, price uh, control, ultimately, right? An important topic for the administration coming on the heels of the Federal Trade Commission rejecting uh, Lockheed Martin's proposed $4 billion plus acquisition of Aerojet Rocketdyne. Um, you know, Dove, give us your take first on what you think of the strategy and, and Michael, your sense on how uh, lawmakers and the community, I appreciate that you're representing companies that do have a stake in this. We should say that, but, but you know, putting your objective Iron Mike Herson hat on where you think it, 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 it's going. Uh, Dove, start us off and then Michael, I want to get your take. Well, you know, this is a, a 180 degree reversal from where Bill Perry was when he encouraged uh, companies to consolidate and merge. Uh, I think it's the right move. Uh, if you want to get ahead of the Chinese, you've got to have everybody playing and you have to have them playing in a way that they don't get swamped into a large bureaucratic organizations. That doesn't mean that the Lockheeds and the Northrops and the Boeings and the Raytheons can't do the job. What it does mean is that you want others to be in the game as well. Uh, I think this is the right move. I think it's not the final answer to how to deal with uh, an acquisition system that still has very, very serious shortfalls, particularly how long it takes and the so-called valley of death where you develop something but you don't field it. Uh, if, and if you do field it, it takes forever to field it. But I think this is a very good move. And I think also it's a move that keeps the door open to the non-traditional defense industrial base. And not only that, gets the industry of the, the traditional base to think about more ways of cooperating with the non-traditional non base. So all in all, I give this one very high marks. Uh, and I should point out, right, I mean, what you were talking about in terms of the Last Supper was now three decades ago, right? I mean, it's, it, it is a different environment today than we had uh, at well, the time of the Last Supper. How slow the Pentagon tends to be in coming to terms with reality. This should have been done years ago. So I give these guys credit that they finally did it. Uh, I, 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 I uh, couldn't agree with you more. And I'm also one of the people who always believes the United States is actually good at industrial strategy, has done industrial strategy, and we can do industrial strategy again. Michael, give us, give us your take, because I know you're on a, you're on a short uh, timeline before you have to punch out. Sure. First, I say I agree with Dove hundred percent that this is the right move. And as Dove said, he's right. If we want to get ahead of the Chinese, uh, we we have to uh, be more inclusive and get everybody in the game. That's what the Chinese do. I mean, I just read the DOD report to Congress on China, which is mandated by the NDAA, and you know, page after page, it talks about not only the Chinese goals and objectives that they're achieving or set to achieve, but how they have every bit of their society entwined, where they have this whole military civil fusion, uh, where they are utilizing their businesses and looking at dual use purposes for civilian you know, commercial as well as military technology. And we don't do a good job at that. 
And we assign contracts or award contracts to companies in areas that they're not their expertise when we should be looking, especially companies in Silicon Valley, that especially when it comes to AI, machine learning, uh, quantum, you know, we've got to think outside the box. We've got to provide more opportunities. And there's a lot of those companies, and there many of them are backed by private equity firms that feel it's just not worth doing business with the government. They're, they're at the end of their rope. So the timing is great because we need to get these people engaged. I just hope that they can execute. Uh, you know, we, we've I've heard the song before. Uh, I remember years ago, there was a panel on the House Armed Services Committee focused, for example, on small business uh, to make sure that they had access and that the Pentagon was looking at them. And I just don't think that any of the recommendations from that report uh, were ever implemented. And, you know, I agree with Doug. I, I think that the, the consolidation, you know, I've, I've seen a, a tremendous amount of it during my career was not a good thing uh, for the military, not a good thing for competition. And it's really slowed things down and increased prices dramatically. So I think this is a great move. But I just hope that they uh, can implement it. Michael, thanks very much. Have a great weekend. Look forward to having you back on again next week. Thank you. Um, Patrick, uh, let me uh, go to you. Jim, I want to bring you in and then uh, bring it bring it home with Dove. Thanks very much for uh, being patient with me on, uh, on changing the order uh, a little bit. Um, let me ask you about uh, two uh, quick questions. Uh, additional quick questions on on China and Asia. Um, we are big advocates on this program, obviously of the AUKUS uh, deal uh, that uh, delivers the kind that would deliver the kind of capabilities uh, that Australia needs uh, in terms of its undersea force and the messaging of bringing allies and partners together to achieve something uh, important, even if we can disagree on the way that it was done and alienating the French. I think in many respects, actually a French attack submarine was the best answer for the Australians, in part because of the lower enrichment level and the fact that the, the French really have created uh, an extraordinary modularized, uh, not as complicated and much more easily supported nuclear submarine force. Uh, for you know, right, I mean, our reactors operate with highly enriched uraniums at higher performance levels uh, than, than the French, even though the French capability is more than sufficient for what uh, the Australians wanted to do. That said, the Australians were disappointed with the French and where we are on the, the conventional version uh, of the Barracuda program. One of the things which I think is interesting is how US and UK officials, when you really listen to what they talk about, seem to be saying, well, you know, gee, that would be really good. But the most immediate and important thing is creating uh, a better Australian undersea capability. And let's not get hung up on submarines. That's in part because some of the concerns the US and the UK have is we are really good at operating this capability safely. The public always gets very concerned about nuclear warships. If the Australians buy a warship of our design and have an incident, this is going to reflect badly on us, and we don't want to take that risk. And there are some Australians who are now dawning on them the magnitude of this for a country that has no nuclear industry. Uh, if you look at the United Kingdom, it has a nuclear industry. France has a nuclear industry, and so does the United States. Um, what's the outlook for AUKUS? Because there are some who have even looked at the Indo-Pacific strategy irrespective of what Jim Miller and the enormous work and the negotiations that are happening right now in the region uh, suggest, is, is AUKUS waning as a concept and an idea, even before it formally gets off the ground? Well, I think not. I think AUKUS uh, is going to be in a continued struggle to take off. Um, but that was always going to be the case. You are dealing with the most sensitive technologies, not just the nuclear propulsion, but other advanced capabilities for undersea warfare and artificial intelligence, cyberspace, and others that uh, are now going to be shared, not just with um, the UK and the United States, but also 
with the 13th largest economy in Australia, and it hasn't been worked that way in the past. So there's a lot of work to be done. That's why the first of three delegations have just arrived in Australia. Um, the head of the Defense Nuclear Powered Submarine Task Force for Australia, Vice Admiral Jonathan Mead, um, yesterday talked about how um, they're going to start sending naval officers to MIT for studying nuclear engineering. Why is that? Because, well, one, there, there's no good nuclear engineering program in Australia. I think there's one senior accredited program at a major university. Um, and they want to they start the long-term investment in this kind of technology. Meanwhile, there's a, a delegation in London looking at AI and cyber because those advanced capabilities are really critical to this R&D um, sort of confederation, this alliance that's going to happen over the long term. That's the most important thing. Undersea warfare maybe is the most important warfighting domain that we're talking about. Submarines are just part of a warfighting domain of undersea warfare. Um, so there is tremendous cooperation that can happen in the next few years, but also in the decades to come among these three democracies to uh, defend uh, their, their own security, but also regional peace and security through undersea warfare, advanced capabilities, and a common research and development uh, industrial base. Um, let me ask you uh, very briefly, and then I want to go to Jim and and to Dove. Um, Patrick, um, what are we hearing from uh, the Chinese about what the Russians are, are up to, right? I mean, they did, as you said, right, the agreement uh, that was released by Xi and Putin uh, was longer than our Indo-Pacific strategy and much more detailed. Uh, there is a sense that the two are in cahoots, but there are those who argue you know, Russia is not going to be happy with this in part because the Chinese don't really think all that much of the Russians. Um, and Putin is going to chafe at being the second banana um, with a extractive, uh, you know, resources extractive economy that the Chinese view as not as sophisticated, right, as as they view their own economy. Um, ultimately, what what has been some of the messaging we've seen coming out of Beijing? Well, we can't dismiss Russian-China strategic alignment. Um, we have a two-front problem globally in terms of this, even if it's a protracted political war, but as, it, as it's toggled up to sort of hybrid war, as, as Putin is uh, want to do now right now in Ukraine, um, China could do the same in Asia. So we have a, a big problem on our hands. China, on the other hand, doesn't want to see what the Australian uh, treasurer uh, hosting the G20 finance ministers or, or at the G20 finance ministers meeting this week just talked about, which is to say conflict in Ukraine will affect badly the, the global economy. Uh, China, you better read that because uh, we're going to be really in a bad situation. We thought we we're coming out of COVID, uh, you know, into economic recovery globally. Um, we'll add a Ukraine-Russia conflict to that and you've just tanked the global economy. China does not want to hear that because their economy is already stagnating. And so they are very, very cautious about wanting to see Russia um, sort of have an open war. But of course, if Putin plays this well, if he toggles between sort of political warfare and hybrid warfare in a way that it's never quite triggering our sanctions, never quite leading to an effective international response, China's gonna draw different lessons from that. And we have to be concerned about that. So they're not talking about that as openly as they are talking about the need for all sides to kind of be restrained and so on, and that they didn't green light Putin to attack. They're just trying to preserve the post-World War II 
uh, sort of victory, the World War II victory of Russia and China. And that's sort of the, the Chinese talking point, as well as Putin's talking point. Don't change World War II's victory on us. Don't start to move these boundaries uh, closer of NATO toward our borders. And U.S., get out of our region, by the way, as well, because uh, China wants to reassert its sort of middle kingdom as well. Um, uh, Jim, uh, let me bring you uh, back into to this right um the administration also in in bring, standing up the administration when it first came into office was a little bit less focused on standing up to russia than it was bringing europeans together to better stand up against china how is all of this playing from uh with the european friends uh that that you're uh talking to right i mean there is a sense uh, that even though we are saying China, 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 Russia, Russia, Russia remains important. Obviously, that's something that Macron is trying to take advantage of. Uh, but, you know, I would say positively uh, in, a, in a net sense. But I also want to get your sense on how Europeans are looking at all of this uh, and, and the connections that they're making between the two, right? As, as their Russia focus go up, does their China focus drop? Or is this dawning on people that, hey, wait a minute, these are both big issues. And they both involve Europe and stronger and more deterrent is better, whether on trade or on security with both of these guys. Well, if you're if you're talking about the European people, the, the, the man in the street, so to speak, across Europe, they're just wishing this would all go away there. You know, there's a whole new generation of Europeans. And uh, there was a great piece uh, in The New York Times today talking about how uh, this new uh, generation of European uh, uh, you know, Gen Xers are, are finding their first crisis. Uh, you know, they were not born during the Cold War. Uh, this is all something kind of new to them. And they're trying to grapple with exactly this. They grew up during a piece, uh, uh, during a time of relative peace. It was led by the U.S. It was led by NATO. Uh, they're now the young politicians. They're now coming into the leadership positions in Europe. And they're, they're understanding what it's like to have a crisis on their um, continent and they're understanding the role of NATO. They're understanding better the role of the United States. Um, so they're starting to, to kind of get it that they they can't just sit this thing out. But that doesn't mean it's, I'm talking about really the young elites here. Uh, but that doesn't mean that in, on the street, uh, the older Europeans and others are saying, "God, I wish this would just go away," you know. And so what's happened is that um, uh, that. Uh, well, like, like what Macron is doing in terms of trying to lead Europe, you know, I, I think we like to mock the EU. We like to mock uh, Macron and, and uh, this type of thing. But we're not going to have the Europeans coming together to help fill the gaps that uh, Dove was talking about. And Dove is exactly right. Uh, we've got to have the Europeans come up and do much more than they've done in the past. It's absolutely critical. But they're not going to get there unless there's a European engine that helps them to get there. It won't be the old Cold War days. The U.S. telling the Europeans what to do, uh, the U.S. leading, uh, you know, that, that, that era that Dove and I came out, came out of and, and you too, Vago, uh, you know, that's not going to happen now. It's got to be driven uh, by the uh, internally within Europe. It's got to be driven by not the Germans. I mean, that would be great, but that's not where the Germans are finding themselves, particularly the new generation. This is really a problem of uh, that, uh, that France is taking on. But of course, when France takes it on, there's chafing because, you know, among a lot of the Europeans saying, well, we now want to follow a Europe led by France, et cetera, et cetera. It's the bickering that goes on within Europe. So, uh, you know, I, I, um, 
I did want to say this uh, just in reply to what Dove was saying, and I agree with Dove on what he was saying, but just the, the nuance here is we've got to figure out a better way to work with Europe and to support the Europeans, you know, trying to be able to do more because they, 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 we have no choice but to have them fill the gap. Uh, and in terms of China, I think that was your, your question, and I'll close it off here. In terms of China, I think right now Russia has distracted them uh, completely. Uh, and they know China is still there. They know the United States is not going to give up on China. We're going to be pushing China, China, China. But right now they've got the wolf on the door, and that's what they're all paying attention to. Uh, Dove, uh, let me give you uh, the last word uh, on this discussion. Uh, walk us through Naftali Bennett record-setting uh, historic visit to uh, Bahrain uh, and also where we are on uh, the Iran nuclear negotiations, which continue to go on. Well, uh, the negotiations continue because uh, the Biden administration is desperate to get this deal. Uh, but, you know, as I've said before, uh, the central issue really isn't Iran's nuclear capability. I mean, yes, if Iran develops a nuclear weapon in spite of the fatwa that was issued by the Supreme Leader, uh, you can see Saudi Arabia, you could see the Emirates all developing uh, nuclear weapons as well. So you'll have this horrible standoff. But, you know, India and Pakistan have had the standoff for a long time. The real challenge, which the administration has absolutely no way to figure out, is what do you do about their missile capability? What do you do about all the trouble they're making? Uh, you know, the Houthis have been attacking the Emirates, for God's sake. So that's a major issue. And that leads me into the Bennett visit, you know, uh, to get uh, the prime minister of Israel to be received by the king of Bahrain. Bahrain may be a small island, but it's an Arab country. Uh, and uh, to be received with quite a bit of fanfare is the crown prince, who was educated, by the way, in the United States and speaks uh, fluent English, is a terrific guy, actually. Uh, is going to be visiting Israel. That is a big deal. Things are changing in the region, and perhaps the biggest change, and certainly linked uh, to uh, what's happening with uh, the crisis in Ukraine, as I mentioned briefly before, is this burgeoning Turkish-Israeli relationship. Israel and Turkey have had their ups and downs since Israel became a state, but all of a sudden Erdogan, who's been labeled an anti-Semite apart from anything else, is inviting the president of Israel to come to Turkey. So things are happening there, and I think that has a lot to do with the fear that the Turks now have that the Russians are going to dominate the Black Sea. So uh, this all hangs together, and I think this is partly why uh, the United States uh, remains a world power but can't operate on its own. Jim is absolutely right. We need our NATO allies. We need them to stand together. And oh, by the way, it's going to be much harder to get them to fight off the Chinese economically if they find themselves having to confront the Russians as well. It may be just too much for them to do at one time, and that creates a dilemma for us. We need a strategy to get them to focus as much on China's economic uh, entries into Europe, which it's already done to a very great extent already, uh, as well as uh, Russia's incursions. That's a tall order, but that's what we elect presidents for. Guys, thank you so very much for uh, joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, hope you all have a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Vago. Thank you.